we're here in the booth today with Lee Harris. Lee, can you explain what you do at the Maroon for us? I'm a news editor and reporter at the Maroon. Awesome. So the reason we're here today is because we talked to uh, a guy named Sean McElwee the other day. What does Sean do and why is he on campus? So Sean is a an extremely online Twitter personality, but he also has written extensively for leftist outlets like The Nation and Sean also kind of got the Abolish ICE movement rolling, even though there were immigrant activist organizations working in the space kind of long before he got there. He was the first to tweet Abolish ICE in early 2017, and since then has kind of been a spokesperson for the movement, writing a New York Times story about it, appearing publicly in an Abolish ICE t-shirt with like big name politicians like uh, Kristen Gillibrand. He was also on Chris Hayes' show, I think, right? Right. Right. Um, and Sean also runs a th- small think tank called Data for Progress that polls issues on the left. Uh, and he was on campus talking at the Chicago Political Union, and we were lucky enough to uh, sit down and chat with him for about an hour. So we're going to you know, cut that up a little bit and let you know what we talked to him about. How did you arrive at UChicago? What's the story? Um, can I do jokes that'll be in my speech, or is that gonna be like sure. okay? Go for it. No, so I um, Anil invited me to do this debate, and I I like didn't really pay a ton of attention to it for a minute because I'm like sort of skeptical of debate as like a concept broadly, um, and like debating a ice sort of struck me as like a sort of weird idea as a concept. It's like, how do you debate the rallying cry of a movement? But my family is in Wisconsin. Uh, My sisters are like Menominee Falls, Waukesha area. And so they agreed to pay for my flight. And I was like, I guess if I can get like a free flight to like Thanksgiving and I can save a buck, I'll I'll do it. Do you want to just explain for our listeners and our readers what Abolish Ice means and what that yeah. entails? Um, I mean, I think Abolish Ice is a sort of rallying cry. And I think it's very powerful. And I think that it has, you know, a lot of meanings. I think it's like an organizing principle. If I was to sort of give one broad meaning, I think it is the idea of sort of ending the ruinization of deportation in this country. Um, so Abolish ICE sort of comes out of the sort of uh, immigrants' rights organizing that happened under you know, the Obama administration. And that organizing has sort of centered anti-deportation as a core goal of the movement. Um, so you know, you've had slogans like, not one more. And the sort of detention watch network has been doing a lot of work around ICE. And so I think that what the framework of Abolish ICE does is it moves, it forces the Democratic Party to sort of, and members of the Democratic Party to move beyond the sort of felons not families framework, which is a really dumb framework because many felons have families. (laughs) And many people who have felonies should not be punished with deportation. And so Abolish ICE is sort of like finally giving a left wing to immigration debates in the United States, which have been thoroughly and fully defined within right wing frameworks. I think in the sort of 
the like sort of long-term goal of abolish ICE is to end deportation. I think in the interim, there's been a sort of strategic value of having this agency, ICE, that is defined in the public by the left, by activists, right? Like ICE didn't really have, nobody knew what ICE was, and then ICE was sort of defined. And it wasn't defined by itself. It was actually defined by the left. Like the left told the American public what ICE was. And so you had these videos where like Samantha B had a video where she was like, kept referring to ICE is, but like the joke was like ISIS, right? Like ICE is ISIS. And like, that's wild. Like it's like, it's wild that we have an agency that has been thoroughly and fully defined in the view of the public as a sort of fascist, Gestapo-like agency. And that, that is a sort of uh, view of the agency that is quite common. Um, and so like we've seen, we've seen a public opinion polling, uh, support for ICE has dramatic, dropped dramatically. We've seen that among the progressive base, among the activist base, the idea that we have to take seriously, you know, tackling ICE is, you know, a top priority. I think that it is almost certain that congressional inquiries will be held um, to sort of limit the abuses of ICE. And the last thing is, I think it, it's sort of a symbol of a shift within left and progressive politics. So you have, you know, two two guys, Joe Crowley and Mike Capuano, both lose primaries to younger women of color, Ayanna Presley and Ocasio Cortez. And if if we want to say, you know, like the Crowley or Capuano were centrist, like maybe, but like they supported all of the sort of like old school liberalism stuff. You know, they supported Medicare for all. You know, broadly anti-war. You know, you could, it, would hard to, it would be hard to find an issue that they weren't progressive on. But where they weren't is they sort of weren't there with the base on the sort of need for dramatic action. Like, we need to do something. We need to just, like, make coherent, concrete demands. And, you know, both of their opponents said we should support abolishing ICE. And at one point there was a debate where Ocasio-Cortez, you know, you know, challenges Crowley. And Crowley's like, I think that, like, you know, ICE is like a fascist organization and what we should do is we should regulate and reform it and it's like you don't regulate and reform fascism you know you you destroy it you crush it out and so i think that like the sort of tonal response from the mainstream democratic uh politicians has not been where the base is at on these issues and i think abolish ice has sort of continuously pressed the democratic party and people who want to be seen as progressive leaders to respond to the violence of the situation, the, 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 the sort of depth of depravity of the situation with the response that it actually merits rather than trying to do like respectability politics. That's a lot, but that's like an opening gambit. One worry I have that's been expressed on the left is the potential for co-optation, by which I mean, if you have a lot of structural xenophobia, racism, all these issues that predate whatever ICE and the Trump administration and will probably outlast it. How can you be sure that abolishing the one agency will actually abolish kind of the structural issues you're getting at? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, is it's like wonderful for the left to be in the place where it's actually being co-opted. Like the idea that the ideas like Medicare for all are something now that politicians want to be associated with is valuable. And like when Mark Pocan did his abolish ICE legislation, which he now has sort of walked away from, which he will eventually walk back towards once a couple more Democrats lose primaries on the issue. 
is that when he like introduced that bill, like he actually had to talk to like Sophie Shaw at Detention Up Watch Network. Like a lot of people were at the table because politicians want to take the sort of energy around abolish ice, and when they want to take that energy, they have to have conversations with the actual stakeholders. Um, so like I'm not as afraid of co-option, I think, as the average leftist. I mean, obviously. And you're the Overton window. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's like, it's like when the, one thing we have is we have terms. Like the left has to understand like what power does it have, what power does it not have. And one power we have is the sort of evocative terms and thoughts and ideas. And, you know, when people want those thoughts and terms and ideas, we actually do have some power to determine what that means. Um, and that is a real power. And I don't think that we should pretend it's not. But the question of the sort of structure of U.S. immigration enforcement being like sort of inherently racist is exactly correct. And I actually think that that's one of the powers of abolish ICE is that it's this idea that you can't constitute ICE, reconstitute ICE in a format that would be acceptable, right? Like one of the things that happened was people got really mad about immigration and then they saw these pictures and like of like children cages and people were like well, those pictures from Obama, Obama administration. And it actually like abolish ICE forces you to have a more structural critique of the agency and actually question like can this agency ever be reconciled with like sort of liberal democracy as we understand and I think the answer to that is no. And I think that abolish ICE also forces us to have bigger conversations about like why are there 11 million people in this country without documentation? Like what what laws do we put in place that created that reality? And the reality is is that like the immigration problem in this country like from top to bottom is bad policy that was designed in the pursuit of like corporate interests and the sort of melding of like white supremacist policy and hyper-capitalist policy of like we need an exploitable labor force that created the situation we're in. And then the people who are you know already victims of that policy are also the victims of the sort of brutal crackdown. You and other leftists have emphasized kind of like the macro pressures that drive immigration, right? Stuff like yeah. climate change, U.S. imperialism, yeah. giving rise to particular economic climates uh -huh. uh, in South and Central America, right? If we don't think those macro pressures are going away anytime soon, what's the long-term strategy on immigration aside from getting rid of mass deportation? Conservatives will say abolish ICE is equivalent to open borders, which I don't think it is. But what is the border policy you see 10 years, 20 years out as climate change gets worse, as we see more refugees in need? Yeah, no, I mean, a, abolish ICE is not, abolish CBP would be the equivalent of open borders. Right. And, you know, we're working on that. That's next. Um, <laughs> I think let's start with the sort of question that you get a lot in sort of left spaces of like the sort of, I guess we'll call it just like the labor left view on immigration. Like Paul Starr wrote a piece in the American Prospect where he said that I was going to cost us the house which didn't happen, obviously. Um, but no, I think that this is actually a wrong way to see it because I think that it's a sort of labor chauvinism that's just really unacceptable. I mean, ICE has been increasingly weaponized as a force of capital. So you see 7-Eleven, they have legal disputes with franchisees and they actually like will then report those franchisees to ICE. 
and like basically use ice as like a bludgeon in contract negotiations with you know small business owners you have workman's compensation where people get injured on the job and they apply for workers comp and then the, the employer calls ice and so like if you don't take a bullish eye seriously it's like hard to say you're like fully there for like workers you're just there for like a specific subset of workers and when you understand the way that like u.s immigration policy is designed to create this like underclass of people with no legal rights i don't think that it can be a leftist position that we should support all workers except for the ones who are like both victims of capitalism and white supremacy at the same time we'll just fucking ignore them for the purposes of like maybe somehow it helps us get more social security or something whatever the argument against that is there's also just like a a sort of i, I i've never heard anyone persuasively argue why is it that the most diverse states in the U.S. also have the most like liberal voting patterns and expansive social safety networks. Like it's like, it's not like New York's social safety net is perfect, but despite the incredible diversity of the state of New York and the city of New York, like there are still people who vote for, you know, an expansive safety net. California is the same way. Again, I would like to see much more, but it's objectively true that like if you took like TANF expenditures per capita or something, and you just ran like a bivariate regression, the correlation is the opposite of what you would expect if you were listening to like a Paul Starr. Um, it's actually that the most diverse states are also the most liberalized on the provision of social goods. So to the other question of what does like an ethical immigration policy look like in the era of climate change, I mean, it's really fucking tough. Um, like we're in a really, bad spot and it's going to get worse and it's why i think creating norms against mass deportation and deportation are so important like if you don't if people's red flags aren't going off when they are seeing like what is going on right now with ice and we are not like creating really strong norms against that like we're gonna start getting to deeper and darker places and that's why i think this sort of like organizing against ice is so important to the broader question of like borders i think abolish ice is going to be a component of whatever happens the next time you have a press for comprehensive immigration reform so you have to get into a little bit of sort of theory of how congress functions but you basically have a situation where what might be called like a bipartisan in finger quotes deal on immigration is probably not going to happen until sometime like 2020 one at the earliest. So you're going to have a situation where like we are going to be going through from top to bottom U.S. immigration policy. And I think that that's when Abolishai sort of has a chance to make some demands. And I think that limiting these exclusionary, deeply racist quotas on countries and allowing for as much immigration as possible, you know, expanding the ability for people to claim asylum, expanding that to maybe include you know, climate asylum is a very serious thing. And I think that what the left should be doing right now is building up as much as possible, like further and further demands so that when 2021 comes around, we can make big demands to get a sort of humanist immigration system in place. What does it actually look like to have immigration policy that is humane? And what are, what are the sort of conversational norms that actually have to, 
develop for that to be possible yeah i mean like i think like all lefties and liberals should be allowed like they're like couple pc instincts and like i have a couple weird pc instincts i can't watch brooklyn 99 because i i don't like cops much and i don't think it's like funny um one of my other pc norms is like the word fatigue around deportation is really frustrating me like uh like deport justin bieber or like deport ivanka trump and stuff like that like i really think that we have far too much word fatigue about like what deportation actually means and like the fact that public opinion surveys generate any large-scale response for mass deportation to me is, is very horrifying and i think that like ending that word fatigue is a crucial first step another thing that we've seen is that as the has become something like people are interested in and people are invested in and i i sort of give this example a lot to help people understand like what the phrase actually means is I say like what if like a bunch of people on Twitter had like started saying let dolphins vote like a lot and like people were like very persuaded by this case that like dolphins should indeed vote but then they would be like okay well what do I what do I do about this and the answer would be like really nothing there's no sort of intellectual framework there's no organizing framework in place but with abolish ice there actually is an infrastructure that actually pre-exists the like phrase being used for the first time and that infrastructure is you know working on you know 287g it's working on local data sharing and so when people become engaged with the idea of abolish ice and i've actually seen this a lot where there'll be a young person who's like love the idea of abolish ice they'll be at their local dsa they're like how do i get involved and they'll be like well we're actually doing work right now to you know cut off 287g funding we're actually right now doing work with local immigration orgs to like stop data sharing with local police officers and so when people become engaged in the idea of abolish ice, they can actually start engaging immediately in organizing activism that is already going on in their local communities and take the slogan and the idea and like turn it into like a sort of functioning reality. And I think that's super, super important. And so I think that the big things are, you know, creating this this anti-deportation norm and also um, really de disentangling ICE from local police departments and sort of fully stripping them out and, and de-embedding them in society. There's too much sort of ICE in our society. Like they're, they're at our courthouses and they shouldn't be there. They're at our police stations and they shouldn't be there. And to the extent possible, sort of fully decoupling ICE and immigration enforcement from the local prison sources, from the local police officers is i think a key aim of the movement and one where you're seeing a lot of successes and then i think the last thing is the sort of investigative capacity of the house so democrats now have a house of representatives that they control and they need to be using that to investigate these sort of broad human rights abuses that have been committed by ICE. so um, sexual assault and ice detention death and ice detention uh, lack of medical attention, ICE detention. That's a very core thing that we can start seeing progress on right now. And the more those abuses come to light, the more the public will demand changes. So one thing that your immediately prior yeah. comments reminded me of something you said earlier, which is that sure. one of the left's big strengths and tools it has at its disposal is 
like moralistic language or like defining yeah. things very vividly for people. And I think, as you said, that's really important in the immigration conversation about telling people what deportation actually means or like what it actually means to be in yeah. detention. Are those applicable strategies to other issues people are activated about? Yeah, I think like there's sort of been this a lot Well, you'll find, I mean, like with the Bosch ICE, there was this interesting moment where it was like a bunch of mayors and city council members signed on to like abolish ICE and it was like cool well, you, you actually can't do that like you don't have the power to like defund ICE at any time um, but here's what you can do like you can take you know do 287G you can get rid of get out of 287G like you can start investigating your local detention spaces like you can start um, you know in New York we now have a, a bail fund or a, a legal fees fund for undocumented folks and, you know, like the Speaker of the New York City Council, who was really invested in Abolish ICE, um, has, Corey Johnson, has done a lot of work to actually make that a reality in the city. And, like, so I think that that's an example that can be taken to other stuff. I mean, Medicare for All is an example of something that the left is, of the left, comes out of the left, that is now increasingly, like, a mainstream point. I think the next big thing you're going to see is something along the lines of the Green New Deal, where... It gets us out of, I mean, fuck, we have the Green New Deal. They have, like, carbon tax, right? And it's like, if you ask the American public, do you want a Green New Deal or do you want a fucking carbon tax? They're going to say, I want a Green New Deal. We had to detach this idea that fixing the, or, you know, solving climate change was pitted against jobs. And that was how Republicans beat Waxman-Markey. And they beat Waxman-Markey because Waxman-Markey was set up as such that it would, you know, heavily front load taxes and not front load the benefits. So I think that like the language of the Green New Deal is going to be a language that is increasingly how climate activists and organizers talk about that issue and will be increasingly, I think, how politicians talk about that issue. And I 100% think you're going to see this with more and more stuff. I mean, we've been doing a little stuff on like seize the patents from pharmaceutical companies. I think like... There's an increasing sense that, like, we do harm to ourselves by not expressing the fullest-throated vision of what we want. And the right doesn't do that. They don't really hold back. They say sort of clearly what they want, and then they get it. And we always don't say clearly what we want. We sort of couch what we want because it's, like, safer and because, like, we paid a, someone $50,000 to do a focus group and then told us not to do it. And I, always, I have to wonder, like, what would Abolish ICE have been if we had had a focus group beforehand? Like, it would have been, like, repealing reform ICE, which was what I think Center for Record Progress wanted to do. So I think, like, that, that, like, language is something that does give the left power. One question I have is how you make um, something like changing the narrative about felons or, or, or felons versus families, uh, families right. or felons, broadly politically palatable. Because policing, and I guess deportation as well, is kind of a weird issue on the left, right? It's like something that Jeremy Corbyn, for example, has to really tiptoe around right. when he talks about expanding policing in, in, in the UK. And, and I think you have a similar problem here where uh, movements like Black Lives Matter and other crucial um, anti-police brutality movements have sort of had a tepid reception on parts of the left, or at least the Democratic Party. How do you make it politically palatable to a broad base of Americans yeah. um, not to deport felons? I, I include on my surveys 
I always include like feeling thermometers for police just to fuck with myself and just to remind myself like where we are as a country. And it gets back to like, I wasn't really, I wasn't really joking about the Brooklyn Nine-Nine thing. I sometimes wonder like how hard would it have been to like get the numbers for ICE down like 15 points if like Pete Davidson had a new show called like ICE Nine-Nine or something where he was like doing cute little, you know, I don't know, like little immigration raids and stuff like that. It, there is a really powerful sort of cultural force that we're up against. I mean, like for me, there's that famous um, tweet about Sandy Hook being the sort of like end of gun rights. And like, I actually think that's probably wrong. Like we're probably gonna get movement on guns in the near future. But like for me, that was like the Daniel Shaver shooting. Do y'all remember this? It was, um, oh, well, this is telling. So there was a shooting, it's a horrifying shooting. It's this guy named Daniel Shaver. Uh, it was a white guy and he had like a BB gun or something. And this police officer who was like, had on his like weapon, he had like some something like you're gonna die, bitch, or something like that on his weapon. I, I forget exactly what it was, but it was, it was very evocative, like very clear, like he should not, was not like in the correct mental state to be a police officer. And he basically has like this guy, Daniel Schaefer, like on his knees and is like barking orders at him. And then like, I guess Daniel like reached to pull up his pants and he just like shoots him in the, in the face. And it was just like, and the video was out there, like the audio was out there, like it was seeable. I believe Connor Friedersdorf wrote a piece in the Atlantic, like the most unjustified police shooting of all time. And it's just like, no, just went on. And like you have all of these increasingly brutal police shootings and you have a situation which even the, the cities, the big cities that are run by Democrats, you can't fuck with police unions. You know, Rom doesn't fuck with police unions. De Blasio doesn't fuck with police unions. You know, nobody is willing. Uh, you know, Bowser doesn't fuck with police unions. So it's, it's a really tough question. And it, I think, I honestly, like, I don't have any sort of short-term solution for what you do about the sort of power of police. But I think it's a, a sort of reminder just of, like, how much work is has to be done and, and the extent to which police are this almost they there's no democratic accountability it's it's actually genuinely terrifying like there is no extent to which you can like meaningfully limit their power in the current political system okay um yeah, so one thing I wanted that your comment sort of sparked for me is you had said earlier that there's sort of a, I think the word you used was word fatigue around yeah. um, deportation in the sense that it sort of like doesn't mean anything or like it gets tossed around casually. And do you think there's any sort of similar phenomenon with police shootings? People are, in the same way that I think the, the average person probably has a pretty poor understanding of what it means to actually go through deportation. Right. Like, it seems to me, at least, that a lot of people don't really have an understanding of what it means to, like, go through a police interaction that is, like, terrifying and potentially, like, life-threatening. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. And it's, it's again, I, 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 I mean, I, I keep the feeling thermometers on police just to remind me of, like, <laughs> where the electorate is on these issues. You know, it, like, 
there's that song by uh, Baked Alaska, you know, we love our cops, our law enforcement. And they really do. Like the people of America love their cops. And there is a sort of media bubble that supports the police. You know, like so many of these shows have like sort of within them inherently, uh, you know, pro-police attitudes. It's the real political correctness, right? The real political correctness in this country is how we talk about policing, how we talk about police officers. And, you know, just how many mountains you have to climb to get police officers to even, like, do the minimum on respecting the Fourth Amendment, um, respecting, like, the First Amendment is, I mean, we had years-long fights in, in New York, even after stop and frisk had been ruled unconstitutional, to get it to the point where just, like, when you have an interaction with a police officer, they have to log that interaction and... Um, you know, give you a piece of paper indicating, you know, what that interaction was. You know, they, they fought that tooth and nail. Um, and we had in the city council, the, you know, very progressive city council, um, you know, really big efforts to water down that legislation, um, often successful. And it, the, the just like the forces that are against you uh, when you do police accountability work is really huge. And, and we've seen a lot of steps Backward after, you know, one step forward, we got two steps backward under sessions. I don't have anything positive. <laughs> I wanted to go back to what you were saying earlier about um, Capuano Crowley and kind of the people oh, yeah, we're seeing yeah, yeah. getting unseated, just moving yeah. away from ICE a little bit. Um, one question I have about identity politics on the left is what are your thoughts on, like, uh, both pushing for diversity, but also pushing for real economic policy. And maybe that doesn't have to be a trade-off, but like, like how does, again, something like identity get sure. uh, misused by libs? Okay, I mean, uh, man, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Oh, where to start, where to start? I mean, I guess there's like this first initial thing that I don't like, which is this idea that like, oh, you know, the right can co-opt, you know, identity politics, right? This is something like, you know, Freddie DeBoer wrote a lot about. Um, and I think it's kind of like a silly argument in a lot of ways. It's like, true, like the right can also co-opt economic populism, right? Like the right can co-opt like the idea that Social Security is a good program, right? Like there's, there is no, there's the, the power of something and the more powerful a leftist idea is, the more the right and center will try to co-opt that. So I don't think that's actually a persuasive argument against uh, what I call descriptive representation, just coming out of the political science literature. There's also this weird way in which, like, I actually think that if you un if you want to understand American politics like really well, it would actually help you to have like that Men in Black thing where they like erase your memory and like erase everything that happened in the 2016 primary. Just psh. because what we're seeing right now is that the most progressive members of the Democratic caucus are disproportionately women of color. Um, you know, it's Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, you know, I think Deb Haaland. <clears throat> and, you know, in the previous caucus before that, in Pr Pramila Jayapal is, is the most, you know, probably progressive left member of Congress. So I think that what we're actually seeing is that supporting women of color running for office um, nine times out of ten means that you're supporting the progressive candidate for office. And creating those pipelines is 
is a force that will help progressives. And that if we can combine the sort of demand from the sort of democratic base to have more women and more people of color represented and also have those women and people of color support progressive left policies, I think that's actually the way you beat back the establishment, which to be entirely frank is, is disproportionately whiter, older, maler, more centrist than what we want to see. And it's also notable that like for all the talk of the right being able to co-opt identity politics, there are no more black women Republicans in Congress. I mean, overwhelmingly, like the Republican caucus is not made up of like centrist black businesswomen, <laughs> right? And if you actually look at who in the Democratic base is the most ready for socialism, who's most ready for really super anti-capitalist politics, it's not actually like rural, non-college whites. It's, it's mostly black people, particularly black women, particularly uh, Latino women, um, particularly young people of color. And I think that uh, we're sort of, we've sort of been tricked by like where, which states did Bernie do well in as correlating with like who is the base for socialism. I hear that just to push back really quickly. Oh, push back all you want. Um, I'm very confident in myself here. Okay. Um, I buy that, yeah, you don't have a lot of uh, black Republican women, uh, but but you also have a lot of college-educated white guys who are on the left, sympathetic sure. to the left. As someone who, like, I don't know, occasionally has been criticized for being a white guy who's speaking with sure. and on behalf of and in coordination with existing organizing movements that have been mm -hmm. around for a while. What do you think of the like step down, uh, hand over the mic, make make more space for women, people of color? Yeah, no, I'm, I think that I think that it's very good for white men to step back. For white men to step back? Yeah. I think that I think that's fine. Okay, well here's a here's an interim question. You don't think Trump's winning 2020? Why? Oh, I don't. No. Um I mean, like, the, the sort of case for this, I'm, I'm still considering betting my career on that. I bet my career on Democrats taking the House. I mean, a very effective way for white men to step back, really, is to just bet their career frequently as they can. And, you know, eventually you'll, you'll lose just based on the numbers. But I've been thinking about betting my career on this because uh, I'm pretty confident that the conventional wisdom on this is wrong. Trump will not be president in 2021. Either through his body just murdering him um, because of how he's treated it, or more likely through the electoral, through the electoral mechanism. I think like people, uh, people sort of, if you ask like Matt Iglesias, who, who's a wonderful, wonderful young man, why do you think you know, Trump will not win in 2020? His answer is, well, or sorry, why do you think Trump will win in 2020? His answer is, well, presidents tend to win re-election. Um, which I, I mean, suppose is true. Like we don't have like a huge N on that. Uh, it's not like a really big sample size, but sure. I think like if you look at the narrowness of Trump's electoral college victory, the continued uh, unpopularity of Trump and his policies, the sort of weakness of the economy writ large, and the sort of the the the, the sort of power now that Democrats have to define their national narrative. I think all of that points against them, and let's spend the most time on that fourth one, which is for the last two years, like with control of every branch of Congress, the Republicans sort of set the agenda. 
they decide what we talk about, when we talk about, how we talk about. If Trump wants to talk about caravan for the last week of the election, we talk about the caravan. And now there's actually opportunity for the Democratic Party using the sort of subpoena power of the House, using the sort of power of Congress. Like, they can start passing legislation through the House. Like, they could do, like, we just passed a Medicare for All bill. You know, we just passed a Green New Deal. We're waiting for, for Trump to react to that. We, you know, we actually can sort of define, like, what are the issues we're talking about. And also, um, Trump's have done an incredible amount of crimes. Um, and the administration has done an incredible amount of crimes. And the sort of daily sort of news of the high crimes and misdemeanors of the administration, I think will continue to press his favorable numbers down. Combine that with the economy and combine that with the fact that, quite frankly, I think Democrats will end up with a candidate uh, with higher favorable numbers going in to 2020. I think if you combine that all together, you get a situation where Trump really shouldn't be seen as the, the favorite. We talked somewhat about like the, the Green New Deal. And one thing that seems mm -hmm. really interesting about the Green New Deal is it sort of takes two buckets of policy, which is solving the impending uninhabitability of the earth. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and the fact that, you know, the economy isn't designed for uh, to benefit most people in the country oh. and sort of creates one solution to that, which is, you know, so solves both of those problems, but also is very approachable in the sense that a lot of people identify what the Greek, what the, what the original New Deal was and can see, well, that was good for a lot of people and they can identify the Green New Deal as being sort of harkening back to that. Are you familiar with any, like, attempts to do that with other sort of, like, issues that touch each other? I mean, I'm thinking of, like, uh, immigration and policing are very similar veins that it seems like there could be a, like a policy that would sort of bridge the divide and also create a point to latch on to. And maybe that would help you take the energy that has been developing around Abolish ICE and also help solve the problem that you're also describing of like people being uncomfortable criticizing policing. Yeah, I mean, uh, in Austin, there was a there was work that was basically decriminalizing marijuana and other small offenses that was under the framework of immigration because the basic idea was if you reduce the amount of times that people are coming on the police officer's radar, you sort of reduce their chances of eventually being detained and deported. And I think like that type of work is absolutely super valuable and should be done more. And I mean, I, I don't want to be like too fatalistic on, on policing. Like, I do think that there is going to be real work that is going to be done. And, you know, cities are, you know, much bluer. And so that there, there are real possibilities of, you know, reform. And I think there's really momentum around it. But I definitely agree with you that there are the sort of tentacles of immigration enforcement sort of and the reason that the movement is so important. And the reason I think abolish ICE is so important is because it comes out of the abolish police and abolish prison movements, right? And these three movements, you know, have similar aims and they're often intersecting. You know, we're having a situation where there's so much immigration detention that increasingly folks who are in immigration detention are being detained in facilities that were not designed for immigration detention, which means you don't have translators and you don't have the sort of like preparation. And you also have a sense in which like, 
people get on ICE's radar through interactions with their local police. And so if you have this over-policing and you have police officers increasingly deputized to do immigration enforcement, all of those systems uh, definitely overlap. And I think you have to fight them with that in mind. Another thing I'm thinking about, too, is we've talked a lot about, like, how legislating can be used to yep. solve problems and things like that. Uh, but one sort of, one thing that I look at is, like, um, progressive people winning, like, DA, DA ships, district attorney yeah. offices, and using that kind of incredible amount of power that the DA has to define how policing is done. Is that like another avenue that should we should pr pursue in other cities? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, I definitely think that like the thing that you tend to see happen and, you know, what Black Lives Matter has done really well is sort of begin to identify offices that people don't often engage with and organize around them. And like you had this like weirdly on the right with the creationist movement where they sort of became obsessed with like school board <laughs> elections and they found out like, oh, it's actually very easy to win school board elections. And if you do that, you can like get creationism taught in the classroom. Um, and so now we have this sort of similar thing on the left where it's like all of a sudden like there are sheriff elections that are happening and like there's actually like these are being contested and the question of ICE is coming up in sheriff elections. You have DA races and it's all just like there. It's all out there and you just end up having to have a movement that latches onto it and sort of galvanizes the popular will around that and I think that that is going to be an increasingly important nexus of political activity as we have more and more sort of gridlock federally and I think that you know the rights maybe first mover advantage on that uh, was real but I think that we're seeing an increasing you know, amount of energy, like Data for Progress did this Give Smart initiative, which, you know, was not as local as, as you're talking, but we did do a lot of stuff around state house and state senate. And it was sort of amazing still how much work had to be done there. I was kind of stunned to find out that for some candidates, like Give Smart ended up being the difference between them, you know, being fully funded and not being fully funded. And, and we worked really hard and long to make sure that we were targeting the most pivotal races. So finding out that there are very important, key, closely contested um, state legislative races that are not being invested in properly tells me that there are a fuckload of sheriff races that are not being invested in properly. There are a fuckload of city council races. There are a fuckload of, you know, DA races that aren't being contested. And, you know, people can really, I mean, like we had it with the uh, Manhattan DA who um, is a huge piece of shit. Cyrus. Yeah, yeah Cy Vance. Uh, and uh, I, I, when, I, when I voted in that election, I wrote in bribing the bribe face. Um, because, but, you know, and there was no one on the ballot against him in the, you know, Manhattan. And so, like, I think that the, there's a sort of, I think there's some dismissiveness of the resistance to Trump among the left. I find that very frustrating because I think there's actually, it's just really important to have a lot of people who are sort of engaged in local politics and I actually think people will be surprised at how often like Indivisible is there and is like ready to sort of take on the side advances of the world um, and the sort of shady DAs of the world. And I think like the more people are paying attention to politics and the more they're paying attention to local politics, um, the more this stuff is really going to be exposed. And it really, I don't think it's going to happen a lot from 
like nationally centered orgs. I think they're going to show up when, you know, show up sometimes, show up sometimes, and often not show up. And so like the more times you have like a local DSA, you have a local indivisible, you know, you have a, a, a fucking local Dems, anything um, that is sort of paying attention to politics, the better. Going off that, a lot of your influence is through Twitter. Um, oh God, and through yeah. leftist Twitter, right? Since we're on the issue of the hashtag resistance and sure. like, like mocking Democrats for being uh, centrist libs a little bit, like what's the right tone to strike? Because on the one hand, there's something really subversive and like refreshing that gets people interested in politics about not being preachy and respectability politics and, and telling it like it is. On the other hand, that can tip really far into being mean and being alienating to potential voters, right? Like, what's yeah. the right balance to strike there? I mean, my view on this, and it's like, I mean, it's just, I come from a different position because, like, you know, as I weigh, I'd, like, I'd actually like the left to influence power. Like, we, I'd like the left to have a vision of the world um, and have that vision enacted in, in laws. And that means creating, you know, political coalitions that can change things. Um, and I actually think that Indivisible will be a, an often a coalition partner of the left. And I think that if you look at the way that Indivisible has comported itself, the endorsements they made were not, you know, in line with the D-trip. The, the sort of tactics it's taken in Congress and the tactic it's demanded from members of Congress have been ex escalatory. Um, and I think you're going to see more and more of that. The reason I'm, I'm sort of more open to what I might call like a normie D than the average person, like a normie Democrat, um, is because I think that there, there's an extent to which policy views um, flow from partisanship. So I think that like there's this view on the left that's like, oh, nobody likes the Democratic Party. Like, so if we just abandon that, we'll finally get our policies, right? Like that, I think that's a view that people would share and would say. Like I think that's why a lot of people believe in third parties. I actually come at it from the reverse. I say there's actually a lot of people who are invested in the Democratic Party and they believe in the Democratic Party. And their actually policy views are more in line with the lefts than they are with third way. And if you say, hey, look, you're a Democrat, I'm a Democrat. And for me, what it means to be a Democrat is Green New Deal, abolish ICE, Medicare for all. There's like a very large share of voters for whom I think the answer is like, yeah, I'm, I'm here for all of that. I, had a, I was talking to someone yesterday, and they were astounded to learn that there were some Democrats who didn't support Medicare for all. And they were like, well, I just assumed all Democrats would support Medicare for all. That just makes sense to me. So I think we underestimate. There are a lot of people for whom, like, the Democratic Party is something they, they're invested in, they pull the lever for. And if you say, like, I actually have a vision for the Democratic Party that is very close to your vision, um, and I, I want, and my vision includes, like, candidates like Ocasio-Cortez. And I think that that's what's so important is that she contested a Democratic primary. She didn't run as a Green candidate. She ran as a Democrat. She said, here's my vision for the Democratic Party. And the majority of Democrats in that district said, that is in line with my vision. Ayanna Presley did the same thing. And I think that if we take our, our message, a left progressive message across the country, and you go to the Democratic voters in any district that's controlled by guys like Dutch Rutzberger and shit, and you say to them, Dutch Rutzberger, you know, fuck him, we want Medicare for all, Green New Deal, abolish ICE, 
I think you're going to get a majority of Democrat, Democratic primary voters who say, you know what, like that sounds like a good vision for me. And I think that we should try that. Give it a cycle. Give me a cycle. Give 2020 a shot. Find some awesome candidates. Run them in Democratic primaries. And look, if we come back and it's 0-10, we didn't win a single primary, you know, I'll be wrong. And you can roast me. And you'll have me on the record, on audio. And you career can say, daddy. yeah, yeah, destroy my career. Uh, destroy my career, daddy. And if that happens, you know, we should recalibrate. But I actually think that uh, Ocasio-Cortez has shown us that there is actually a very strong potential that this path could be viable and that we should take that seriously. Sure. Do you want to go one more? I think you have to be in stage and uh, just a few. Okay. Go ahead. Sure. I interviewed a guy, uh, the sure. VP of Third Way over the summer. Oh, how was that? You know, here's the thing. Such a smart, nice guy, and I found myself wondering, why do centrist Democrats exist? I, that's my question for you. Like, why, if you are a Democrat, <laughs> excluding those people who are beholden to, excluder, excluding the Chuck Schumers, right, of the world, who have very explicit uh, moneyed interests they're representing, do you not think third Why way is moneyed interests? Oh, for sure. No, 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 no. exactly. Yes, but but I, yeah, maybe I liked this guy a little little too much, given too much credit. But but there are there are lots of moderate liberals in the country. Like why? Why wouldn't? Why isn't everybody a leftist? Why is it? <laughs> That's a big question. I mean, I think like your average ordinary run of the mill person, it might be a different question than third way. Oh, sure. Um, like I think like. I don't know, like drawing from the political science literature, like one of the things you find is like most people who are like moderate, it's they're moderate because like they have like a sort of weird eclectic collection of like semi-extreme views. They're like, well, well, I love ICE, but I also love Medicare for all. <laughs> and I think that like herbal remedies work better than modern medicine. I'm like, you know, I think that like kombucha can save lives, which I, I do believe that. But I think that like there is just a really big extent to which like the average American is quite poor at like sorting their policy views um, into coherent systems, which is what, you know, people like me do and what, you know, uh, what people like Matt Iglesias do and like what unions do is like try to sort of like create this like bundle of policies that you can get to 51% of voters who are in support of. Um, but I mean, like, why does third way like I, I think like they believe it, and like I, I said this on um, the show I did with Chris Hayes, where like if you come from a certain era, like w with me, like I grew up under like you know Obama was ascendant, like progressivism was ascendant, and then like AOC was ascendant, and like there was this palpable feeling like we can stop being in the situation where we're just fucking kicked in the face every fucking day. And if you're of a different generation, like your lived experience is that like the Democratic Party got the shit kicked out of them basically every election. Um, and you felt like this need to like speak to an electorate that I don't think exists anymore. And maybe Bill Clinton was your best option. Yeah, no, exactly. So I, I sort of contextualize them in, in that. And I just think that they they're wrong and I'm right. And that means I'll win. Um, and then they'll know that they were wrong about the electorate. Um, and if not, you know, that's why you got to keep betting yourself. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for uh, yeah. doing so much, this. Sean. It was, it was good really to meet you. It was great. Thank Absolutely. you.